Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is episode 22, the second in our series of speaker interviews from the NZIA in situ conference 2019. I'm Tash and I'm here with Jeremy and Arch and uh, today we're featuring our interview with Canadian architect Betsy Williamson from Williamson and Williamson. Neighbourly relations and politics aside, Canada and New Zealand share a number of similarities, including a strong residential architecture and a history of building with wood. So it was a real pleasure to sit down with Toronto-based Betsy and chat about timber technology, intergenerational housing and running a humane practice. Betsy, thank you so much for um, joining us on the on the podcast today. Um, we've um, I was lucky enough to be at the breakfast um, that you're at this morning, and, and we've just heard um, your wonderful uh, talk, which covered uh, the work that you're doing uh, in private practice. Um, and one of the things that struck me was that you were quite candid about the hands-on nature of running uh, a small practice, and also alluded to the the hard graft years um, that uh, many practitioners face uh, when they decide to go out on their own. Um, do you think that that experience of wearing all those different hats um, from you know accountant to HR manager to design director um, has made you a better architect to your clients? I think it has because you understand fully the complexity um, and the interweaving of um, cost, uh, delivery, uh, the work that's involved. So because you're never disassociated from any of those things, um, you can really... Um, uh, work well to bring the best value to your clients. So the question of value has uh, displaced um, something being economical because value doesn't necessarily mean cheaper. And uh, when you are intimately involved with all the aspects of your own practice, you know how much effort it takes to bring value to a client and um, what you can do to help manage their expectations, which is one of the most important things that you have to do as an architect. Any architect can, you know, say, ah, oh, it's going to be great and design is going to be wonderful and blah, 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 and it'll be on budget. But unless you um, manage the kind of realities of those expectations, someone along the line will be disappointed and um, it really had better not be your client. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess also that managing um, expectations goes both ways. I mean, managing uh, clients' expectations in terms of um, the project and the outcomes and, and the methodology but also in terms of being able to um, make sure you're doing the best by um, the people who work for you as mm-hmm. well in terms of not setting unrealistic expectations that mm-hmm. cause pressure within the office as well, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. yeah we have a relatively um, uh, humane practice. We're not one of those that work on the weekends or do lots of late hours. Of course, when there's a deadline, sometimes you have to, you always have to do the work. So that's why with um, a really experienced team, you can float people between projects and they can uptake really quickly, which is harder to do when you're much younger. So at this point in my career, I've been doing this for so long, I can switch hats very quickly and without any delay in productivity. But that's something that you actually have to learn. I don't think that's a natural skill for anybody. So the more experienced architects in our office are able to help the others so that when someone has a particularly large amount of work, we can grow their team, get that work done. So it's not really um, just their problem to stay late and and get it done. So hoping that some of that balance can come through um, uh, with our staff as well. 
and, and speaking of um, switching hats, as well as running your own practice, you are also a member of the to- uh, Toronto Waterfront Advisory um, uh, Board. Can you um, talk a little bit about that and, and, and whether the urban work influences your private practice and vice versa? Well, the it's so that... Uh, is about a day a month a day and a half a month so they send you this binder and you read through it and you prepare all your questions Um, the focus is really on designing um, a uh, well-designed equitable uh, public realm and so we're really primarily concerned with the first 14 feet uh, or say four meters of every building um, that gets built as well as all of the infrastructure landscape and horizontal components that the public is going to use um, as that uh, that piece and that the focus on the public realm has absolutely influenced our work because you start thinking less about your work as distinct objects and more about how it interfaces with everything else that's around it. In residential, it doesn't come up nearly as much as it would in, um, in other projects. Um, with the pilot coffee work, the commercial work that we have, we're always thinking about that public interface and how to bring people in and what that experience is on the street and then moving through into the into the site. Um, so that that has helped uh, certainly. Um, I came onto the board as quite a young person, so about eight years ago, with um, not nearly the experience as most other people who had already been sitting on the panel. So the learning curve that I went through was enormously beneficial personally kind of with my growth as being able to discuss and be critical of work in a way that doesn't really piss the people off that are presenting the work. So that's a really good skill to have. Um, The architects and design teams that come through are relatively sophisticated. And um, inevitably, there's always something that could be improved. And how you actually talk about those pieces in a meaningful way that both helps the design team improve what they may be what they may have to but also gives them the ammunition that they can take back to their um, clients who are usually developers and say look you know we've been presented with this information and with this kind of critique in this forum and we agree with them and this is what we've been telling you the whole time so let's try to incorporate this into the project so we hear that as much as anything else from the design teams that come forward it's like oh yeah you were critical but it actually really helped the project which is incredibly satisfying yeah I mean I think um, those uh, those sort of behind the scenes understanding all of the the politics that play out even within a client um, designer relationship are really important in terms of lifting the whole uh, game in, in urban projects. I mean, often there's a lot of different dynamics going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I think the other uh, really interesting aspect of um, your work that you showed us today was the intergenerational housing. Yeah. And um, we here in Auckland have a, a housing crisis, which is not dissimilar to many other major cities around the world. Um, do you think that this is a, a model that should be pushed further in our cities, and how do we go about doing that? Absolutely. So the f- the first thing um, that it's the probably the hardest thing to do is um, from a regulation point of view, allowing multiple units in uh, the single family home model or allowing more density in areas that don't currently have density. We often have to uh, have to ask special permission to increase the density to make these projects happen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think the fear is that with giving over increased density, that it will fall into the wrong hands, as they say, and you'll end up with a whole bunch of super dense, non-livable, kind of crappy projects that aren't, don't have the, um, aren't getting you where you need to be, um, but maybe turn into cheap rentals for students and, and things like that. But you can't you can't do one without doing the other. So um, there's been some communities I know out in um, Portland and on the American West Coast that have allowed units to be built in the back of yards because they also had these kind of long yards. Uh, Toronto has now um, officially approved what's called the laneway house. So on, like I said in the lecture, the lot that we have is 15 feet wide and about 120 feet long. You can actually legally build a little second residence facing on to the laneway that cuts through the backs of all the properties, which allows you to have a rental unit, a granny flat, or something like that. So that kind of forward-thinking um, uh, you know, zoning kind of work mm. is actually really important. The other piece is um, kind of cultural, making it okay for families to come back together um, and figuring out the way to make it so that the young people don't feel like they've, say, moved back home mm. or are back in high school again. And that becomes a particular um, area of anxiety for a lot of people. Um, they tend to get a bit more um, relaxed about it the older they are. So the Ancaster Creek House, the clients were a little bit older than the uh, Grange Triple Double clients, and they were very relaxed about the whole thing and just, just adore spending time with their parents, so they're just happy to have them there. That's really sweet. Yeah, it is. They're, they're very, they're like the nicest yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's a really um, a charming project. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think the other thing that was really apparent when you were talking is, and um, we were just discussing this um, before we started, the similarities between Canada and yeah. New Zealand, <laughs> um, uh, both perhaps with our um, cultural relationship with our uh, neighbours, um, but also um, we're both uh, countries with a strong heritage in timber buildings mm -hmm. and I was really interested to hear about some of the timber technology work that you were um, doing and um, in particular with um, was it the was it a timber agency that you have in Canada can you talk uh, about that the the group that we have a very close relationship with is called Ontario Woodworks right and they are a government agency um, uh, so funded um, by the federal government on a provincial level to increase the amount of timber that's used in commercial and institutional uh, buildings. Not so much in residential, we use tons of uh, light framing because mm -hmm. it's just really the cheapest thing to do. Um, so they're pushing specifically uh, using timber in other places. So they've um, given um, grants to allow architects to go through processes that you would not normally have to do if you were building with more conventional systems. Their support is really um, good and they, they sponsor architects from Ontario to fly to conferences and, and do all this stuff. So there's a potential trip to Portland where there's a tall bid, uh, timber conference where they're hosting a number of architects to accompany them over, which is really fantastic. Our work uh, in particular started quite a long time ago um, and when we started doing our milling work there were no mill workers that had 
three-dimensional milling machines um, routers in Toronto. So we actually went to an engineering company that made prototypes when we did our really early product uh, projects. And then Shane applied for a grant at University of Toronto to set up a lab. And that equipment is the equipment that we used um, early on in our in, in our first projects. And there was nobody else doing it. Now, the industry fairly quickly caught up. But we're now seeing the same thing in the mass timber world, where there's a few producers of the product in Ontario, but it's not quite the level of expertise expertise that you need to produce something that's pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. So there's still that growth that needs to happen, but it can only happen through demand. So as we saw really early in our career with the CNC milling machines, that we we did a lot of it and everyone said, oh, you know, who made that for you? And people took notice and then people started buying them and then lots of people were doing it and it became a, a norm in the industry. And um, I can only hope that the same would happen on a much larger scale with mass timber. Mm, mm. I mean, the potential is really, really exciting. And, I know. You know, it's right at our doorsteps and as you say, it's... Yeah. renewable. That's right. And it's the added value, which is something that I think that we have in common with New Zealand, where we make all this great, you know, we grow all these great things and pull it out of the ground and then we just ship it off mm. to other people. And then they add all the value yeah. mm. and then they make a huge uh, profit on it. And I think, well, why can't we do this? Yeah. You know, we should be able Very to do this similar better. conversation here, a long source of frustration. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and we have a history of doing that with a lot of our products yeah. for a very, very long time. And yeah, we no, use a lot of American, Canadian cedar, I think. Don't we? Yeah, <laughs> in New Zealand. Well, it really is the best cedar. So. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds a little bit chicken and egg, though, and that it's relying partly on the goodwill of architects and their clients to mm. lead this in an experimental sense. But you also mentioned a kind of grant scheme whereby architects can be subsidized for the work they may do with this technology. That's right. So I think that's where the governments are coming in to help grow that um, the industry because I think now that it's got a kind of baby legs, the federal governments both in Canada and the States are seeing this as potential um, major growth area in both countries. So typically we just, you know, cut our timber down, ship it down south, and they chop it into little bits. But now with this um, with this ability to make larger scale pieces, I don't think it will ever eliminate concrete or steel industry. I think the, those industries are robust and healthy and will always have a place. But there's definitely um, a sector that could be expanded, um, likely in the modular home world, mm. um, and uh, potentially in the tall building to very tall building. We'll see how that shakes out. But there's mm. some really great, I was talking to an architect after my talk who has a proposal for, I think, a 28-story mm. tower in Australia moving forward which is amazing mm. and I said but please I hope you really get this done because that, that kind of work is really important work and it would be nice to see. Yeah absolutely and I mean certainly in that sort of medium density space timber is really really well suited to um, uh, um, joined up housing of, of all different kinds and sort of that three to five story scale as yeah. well. I think that our particular role because we're a small office and have a um, a relatively kind of small niche of that we work in. We're not doing giant developments or rolling out multiple homes, but it's it's that issue of raising the bar. So when we eventually kind of we've pitched mass timber so many times, you couldn't even imagine it doesn't hasn't quite gotten there. But when we um, 
do projects and we put it out there and all of our peers and colleagues can see the work that we're doing, we just really hope that they feel like they can do one better. And um, trying to exploit timber um, in this way, I think, will hopefully raise the bar and get everyone to say, oh, those guys do it. I think, I, think I think we can do better. And then they'll bring their best work forward, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Betsy, I think we've just got um, probably time for one more question. We were wondering, um, how, why do your clients choose you? Ah, oh, the architecture really is a. Well, they, I think they choose us because they, they a they have to like the work, and they have to like you personally. Um, it's a really funny industry where it's very much a service industry. You know, we think we're all artists and things, but at the end of the day, we're actually serving our clients. And um, I think that we can um, uh, build trust fairly quickly and give our clients some, some confidence. And so when they're interviewing around, you, you have to have that very quick rapport being built uh, so the the person who can do that best say in the first couple of first meeting or two is likely the person that's going to land that client um, uh, having a great portfolio of work certainly helps mm -hmm. because they whereas we always tell them we're not quite sure what your project will look like but it will be as good as all the other work that you see, but it might not look anything like that work. Um, someone who can roll with that um, is who we choose as a client. I guess mm. the question could be turned around is mm. like, how um, do we pick clients mm. as well as how do they pick us? Because that is also equally important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, they've got to go with the flow. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it affects the overall outcome of the project, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, thank you so much, Betsy. Really enjoyed uh, talking with you uh, today. Great, you're welcome. It's been yeah. a pleasure to meet all of you today. Great to meet you too. Thank Enjoy you the rest of your stay. Yeah. Thank you. So that was Betsy Williamson, and while I didn't see your talk, I did get to sit in in the interview with you, Tash. And um, like so many of the speakers we spoke to, like so absolutely fluent and clear in the articulation of what she means. And I hope that I hope that listeners can kind of get a picture of some of the themes that she was talking about. Um, who didn't get to see her talk. But you were very interested in the play she makes on density and flexibility and, and family and those sorts of things, weren't you? That she was able to deliver with these intergenerational developments she was doing. Yeah, she presented um, two interge intergenerational projects, um, uh, both quite different. But what was really lovely to see was the flexibility within the designs. And we don't often see that um, uh, in the housing that is presented today, or certainly not in New Zealand. And it was flexibility not just in its current use, but really imagining future generations and how they might habit, habitate um, this one building. Mm -hmm. um, I think we need more responses like that. Mm. And it was really exciting to see how she developed these multi-generational houses within existing planning constraints. Yeah. They were very attractive looking buildings, they fitted beautifully into streetscapes that were often quite eclectic, um, and she reported that the occupants were kind of much more relaxed about intergenerational living once they moved in and um, you know, the hurdles they thought that they would encounter when they got there didn't seem to matter and those walls broke down a little bit between the generations, which was kind of heartening to hear as well. Mm. Absolutely, but I think that that probably um, speaks to the, the richness and cleverness of those designs. It, it was really obvious how you could occupy that building um, and be quite independent, 
have your own space, have your own outdoor space, and and really have some control over the the amount that you mixed or didn't mix with your neighbours. And in fact, I, I think from memory there was um, the inclusion of a rental unit within that space. So you know you could imagine that the same building, if it wasn't occupied by a family group, could equally you know easily be occupied by say a number of of people who weren't related or a business on the ground floor yeah. and all those kind of permutations it was really thoughtful yeah the other thing I, oh sorry they no just think are these i wasn't able to see the talk and um wasn't part of the interview but are these houses that were um designed for those occupants specifically or are these things that uh, like uh, a spec development yeah no they had a, um, a, a specific client in mind, but um, I guess they imagined how, you know, when the young son grew up and, and potentially um, had a partner or a family, how uh, he might occupy the house. It was sort of some thought to, you know, beyond the current um, brief and family unit. Okay. And she'd also mapped the investment that was required to, say, build a multi-generational home as opposed to a single family home and how that investment would kind of pay off over the generations and I can't remember the details of that but it was really interesting how they'd worked out how financially the extra expenditure on the build because they're building more square meters um, would pay itself mm. off over a period of time and which generations would be most responsible for kind of wearing that um, which was really interesting too and the model stacked up in so many different ways that was, mm. that's what made it so appealing I think. Mm. And, and it's interesting to look at in terms of our kind of current planning uh, in Auckland and I won't dwell on it but you know we've uh, one of the changes the unitary plan has uh, brought about is the possibility of a minor dwelling um, on mm -hmm. single um, house uh, lots but actually this solution was in many ways um, it provided more scope because it consolidated the amount of building on a site um, which meant that there was more open space given over to um, each of the, the residences. Uh, so it's very clever. In New Zealand we'd be worried about the resale value, wouldn't we? Because we've got this kind of hermit crab mentality here where you grow too big for the shell you're in and you move. Because I don't think that, that mentality is necessarily um, in the rest of the world where you do live in a house for a long time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you, you've talked about way. this idea mm. of the, the sort of mythical mythical future buyer of your house, mm -hmm. and that's who that's who you design and kit your house out for. Mm. And you even buy your house. In New Zealand, a lot of us buy our house for the next buyer. Mm. So we can't. We only need two bedrooms. We can't have two because we can't sell two. So we need a three bed, and we'll leave that empty for four years, and then we'll sell it because the three bed will. You know, this sort of. Mm. Yeah, notional is, future buyer which is totally corrosive because the notion of yeah. the future buyer tends to be quite homogenous it's sort of a two parent two or three child family which means in New Zealand we have a huge shortage of um, homes for the fastest growing demographic which mm. is one or two people only living yep. in a dwelling um, we lack one bedroom apartments for example mm. one bedroom units um, drastically and so you would hope that a few model developments like this in New Zealand would just kind of make people think more about not having to grow out of a home and building for places that will last them in a multi-generational sense. And hopefully, um, you know, the craziness of um, the housing shortage and the prices, price rises that people are experiencing at the moment means that buying becomes a less attractive option for people that are already in the market. So they consider these options of kind of investing in the site they're in and developing it so that it can last for many generations. Mm. And then also serves other future buyers better because they're 
you know, you could have an income from renting out a unit below. And there's just a, um, there's a lot of insurance there, not just for the owners of that building, but for kind of the larger urban form, because there's all these flexible buildings around that can mm, respond mm. to population and demographic changes mm. really easily. And for communities, actually, yeah. because you're yeah. building in the structures that support actually broad, rich, diverse communities. We're not all, you know, people looking for a three-bedroom, two-bathroom family home, mm. and actually communities would be um, quite dull if that was the only yeah. <laughs> sort of group inhabiting even, housing there. Even down to the family dynamic, the strength of having all the generations together, you know, grandparents and grandchildren yeah, together, exactly. and, uh, and the benefits Aging to both place. of them. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. One other thing I thought about her work, and you will know the vocab for this better than I do, all being proper architects rather than a... It's called a transom. <laughs> but I, I really like the way that um, Williamson and Williamson used a clearly modernist vocabulary, but it didn't seem derivative or dated. It, it always seemed appropriate, and they were kind of bringing elements of craft. Yes. And not mm. expensive craft a lot of the time into the execution of that modernist vocabulary just to enrich it in a way that didn't feel indulgent, yeah. did make each project feel like it had a sense of individuality and warmth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not afraid of ornament, and craft is absolutely the right mm. word, from that staircase to the sort of ornamented um, timber baton facade that had that sort of undulating pattern etched into it, which is just such a wonderful deco-y, deco it's sort of a contrast between, it's almost anti-modernist in a sense, because, you know, anti-decoration. Mm. Um, but a real crafty, arts and crafty, deco-y kind of sinuousness to it. And there was a sinuousness, like that stare in those lines, they're, they're soft, they curve, they contrast the linearity of the buildings, which were highly orthogonal, Yeah. highly rigorous. But, it, you know, I, for me, it was that thing about the tactility of um, uh, the projects and the design, the, the idea that the things that um, you came into contact with mm. as a human were, were beautiful to touch yeah. and to to look at and, and you know that that is actually those are the elements that start to make a home really really special yeah yeah and I remember um, Alison Brooks talked about exactly the same mm. thing mm. and when she was doing social housing and she was talking about the importance of those pieces that you touch those are the bits you interface with mm. in episode 15 you know yeah. and she, she talked about those things you connect with balustrades bench tops, door handles, those are moments where you can kind of apply that detail. Yeah, it's another, it's yeah. another level of commitment to the home too, isn't it? If there's something built into the home which you love and enjoy and have crafted, um, that's so much more permanent and so much part, more part of the home. It's something you can do easily or more easily if you can live there for 20, 30 years. Or mm. before, you know, if, you, if you're building something which you sell to someone else you're not going to invest that same love into the place or even if you're renovating a house and um, you less like to do something just for yourself if your mindset is selling it again in the future and it didn't feel like expensive craft and that they were using machine tools and kind of industrial techniques to create this but there was the thought felt crafted i suppose mm. behind it but it wasn't like having one person um you know hand adds a staircase for you it was, yeah it was simpler than that wasn't yeah. it yeah and it wasn't indulgent, but it just felt like a little bit of extra expenditure for a touch of luxury yeah. tactility that you 
may lead art and, and I love that she talked about how when she first wanted to do that there was no one who had one of those machines they set up they were able to do it mm. you know now there's more she's actually like kind of induced a demand mm. almost mm. which I think is amazing a really wonderful thing for an architect to be able to influence mm. well that was um, episode 22 and our chat with Betsy Williamson thanks as always to the NZIA for their support of letting us do these interviews at Institute that's it from 76 Small Rooms. Bye. See you next time. Thanks. Bye.